Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober, right here on Green Earth Radio. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. Today, we continue our countdown to the Weston A. Price Foundation's annual Wise Traditions Conference in November. Our guest is Rachel Kaplan, co-author of the book Urban Homesteading. Plus, our desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to our appetizers and find out what happened this past week in the world of real food. Minnesota raw dairy farmer Alvin Schlangen, who is charged with selling raw milk, operating without a food license, and handling unadulterated, sorry, adulterated mis- or misbranded food, was found not guilty on any of the charges earlier this week. The verdict is a huge victory for raw milk and farm freedom, but the fight to sell raw milk is far from over. Schlangen faces a trial for similar charges in the nearby Stearns County Court next month. Next, a federal judge in Los Angeles rejected the bid to overturn the state ban on foie gras sales. Attorney Michael Tenenbaum, who filed the civil lawsuit against the state, says he plans to take this case to the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I'm a strong advocate of the right to sell foie gras and support the efforts of Tenenbaum and the Southern California restaurants that he's representing. In other legal news, an Australian court has ordered Kentucky Fried Chicken to pay $8 million in Australian dollars to a 14-year-old girl brain-damaged and in a wheelchair from salmonella found in chicken that she ate seven years ago. KFC is appealing the decision. I hope that the appeals court upholds the verdict. The tragedy of what happened to this girl shows just how great the dangers are of factory-farmed and fast food. Also... Recent studies show that pesticides are the main cause of colony collapse disorder with the bees. Bees are important because one-third of the diet everyone consumes is from insect-pollinated plants, and three-fourths of all plants need animals for pollination. And finally, a coalition of consumer groups is advocating for the USDA to remove tuna from school cafeterias because of the high levels of mercury found in it. The tuna is responding back that the tuna is safe. This is the tuna industry I'm talking about. While it's true that tuna is high in mercury, I'd say it's the least of problems that schools have to worry about in terms of what they're feeding our youth with all the factory farm meat, pasteurized dairy, and highly processed foods that they're serving. Tuna also has many great benefits, such as being high in omega-3s. I recommend only eating tuna once a week, but see, it is important that students get fish as part of their diet. And that brings us to our main course, which today is urban homesteading. Urban homesteading is a lifestyle and movement involving self-reliance. It involves growing your own food, going off the grid, reusing your water, and avoiding waste. Being the appropriate omnivore, I'm certainly a big proponent of having your own garden. I support local and organic. What's more local than having food grown in your own yard where you only have to walk a few feet to get there? And the only way you can truly know if something is organic is if you grow the food yourself. As this station is called Green Earth Radio, certainly our listeners and I have an interest in the other aspects of urban homesteading as well. Here to talk with me about urban homesteading is Rachel Kaplan, an urban gardener for over 20 years and author of the book Urban Homesteading. Rachel, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here. Great. Certainly it's wonderful, I think, what you do, and certainly you bring... 
great light to exactly what uh, urban homesteading is with your book and with your website. So if you could explain for us specifically, I talked a little about kind of what I see urban homesteading as kind of an overview. How do you define urban homesteading? Well, I see urban homesteading also as a movement that's happening throughout our country of people who are trying to gain more self-reliance, who are trying to um, use less and produce more, who are trying to rebuild local economies to have good, healthy food for themselves and their families and their communities. It's also, I see, as a response to some of the larger social problems that we face or global problems, really, climate change and our economic problems and the ecological devastation that kind of characterizes our age. So people are really trying to take matters into their own hands, stop waiting around for anybody to do this for us, and excuse me, reclaim some of the skills that people have done always in their homes to provide for their families and to take care of their home places. And I think a lot of people are growing a lot of food, raising a lot of animals, learning a lot about waste and how to use less and how to manage their water better, their energy, their wastes. And um, we also include a lot of practices of self-care and community building as part of the homesteading way. A lot of different projects are springing up where people are working together to create opportunities for food growing and um, humane animal raising and seed saving and water saving, just everything you can do at home alone, you can also do more effectively with others in your local area. So that's happening also all over the place, and that's a really exciting development. So certainly a lot of different aspects of urban homesteading. How did you get involved with it in the first place? Well, I was always a gardener, and um, and most, you know, sometimes, you know, growing vegetables, but you know, flowers, vegetables, making beautiful spaces in the city. And then I became a mom right around the time of 9-11, which was a kind of intense time to become a parent. And, you know, for those of you who know what that means, when you you become a parent, you have this fierce abiding love for your child and your whole life energy is sort of pushed into the future that they're going to inhabit. You start wondering, like, what are we leaving for our children in a much more uh, embodied way? And I watched those towers falling while I was nursing my daughter, and I thought, holy moly, (laughs) stuff's going to start really going from bad to worse. And I pretty much spontaneously started growing more food and reskilling in the kitchen, really learning how to can and ferment and preserve food. We had at that time moved from San Francisco to a much smaller town on the coast, and we lived on the biggest piece of land we've ever lived on and probably will ever live on again, and there was this plum tree that was just dropping all this food, and I started trying to figure out what to do with all this food. And um, and then I studied permaculture, which is a beautiful um, human settlement design system that's rooted in a series of ethics and principles that really help us um, remake our lives towards... Um, not only sustainability, but something beyond sustainability, repairing the earth, restoring culture, restoring our relationship to the natural world. And that really set me on a path of learning about all of these different things, not only the food piece and the animal piece, but also the water, the the land, the soil, all the different elements of the environment that you live in start becoming part of what you address when you're following the permaculture path. And so that just 
changed our whole, that just changed everything, just everything. And we started just, my partner became a beekeeper. I had a community garden, and then I found a friend who didn't want to garden in her backyard, and she gave me her backyard to garden in, and then we gardened in our backyard. So we just started spreading out and taking more and more space in our neighborhood to grow our food shed and our, yeah, that's how it just, it just kept growing and growing from there. So it was 9-11 that got me started and then permaculture that kept me going. So That's interesting to think about how actually a lot of this green revolution and being more sustainable started in the post 9-11 time. I never kind of yeah. thought about that, but... I think maybe that did kind of get all of us to just kind of think more about how we're going to live our lives. Well, I think it was a pretty intense moment, no matter how you look at it politically or whether or not you think it was a conspiracy or this or that, you know, any of that political stuff aside. It changed the tone of things, and um, I think it it, it created like a whole other level of fear for people, (laughs) and um, things started getting significantly more expensive, and... um, unsteady in a certain way and that leading up then to the economic uh, crash of 2008 where things really started getting serious for people at a whole different level and it was really apparent that the government was not in control of any of these things and was not really going to roll in any way it starts the whole idea of self-reliance and doing it ourselves gets gets ever more important. And I think Michael Pollan's book, To Tell You the Truth, The Omnivore's Dilemma, which of course you're fully aware of, is was super consequential for many, many people in terms of thinking about um, how degenerate the industrial food supply really is and how um, careful we need to be about what we're putting into our bodies and the kind of support we give to an industrial agriculture system that's actually destroying the earth that it's growing in. So I think people really have started evolving their own place-based home-scale solutions to that larger problem, which, again, of course, is connected to all these bigger problems, peak oil, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's all, it's all interconnected. So, but I don't know that people go to this lifestyle necessarily with a political orientation like that. Like, that's been one of my thought forms, but I've talked to people who just want to, they just want to, they say, I just want to learn to do the things my grandparents used to do, or I just want to know what kind of food I'm eating, you know, and it's it's not about climate change or peak oil or any of that. So there's a whole range of reasons that people are returning to these skills and this lifestyle. Right. Certainly a lot of what my show is about and also the Weston A. Price Foundation is about is about turning back to the lifestyles, you know, like the beginning of the 20th century. And that's a lot of what the organic movement is because there's the joke, organic or what is our, our grandparents called it, food. Right. <laughs> exactly. And it's interesting that you brought up about things becoming expensive and changing lifestyles. So do you see urban homesteading as something that's very affordable? Well, I think that's a great question. I think that once you set up your systems, once you once you set your garden up and invest in, if you need it, irrigation or soil or the raised beds you're going to grow in, or once you build your chicken coop, it is very affordable to um, grow your own food. You have um, it, it saves a lot of money. And once you learn skills like seed saving. Um, then you don't even have to buy seeds anymore. So it becomes this uh, closed-loop cycle where you um, you can uh, grow and eat and save your seeds and grow some more the next time. But setting setting things up, 
setting up your infrastructure, definitely there's a cost to it. And that's one of the reasons in our book we really talk about people doing things um, in, a, in a more collaborative way. The first chicken coop I had, I built with a friend around the corner. She had a bigger piece of, she had a bigger um, property, and we built it together, and we took care of the flock together, and it saved us money in terms of um, setting it up, but also in terms of taking care of the chickens. We split the cost feed, we split the eggs, and we became great friends in the process. So there's some some part of uh, doing this collectively. You know, always when you share things, you save money. You share expenses as well. So there are ways to make it super affordable. And at this point, we save a lot of money from the food that we grow because we don't have to. We're not buying it. Right. We're so Right. So certainly the setting up at the beginning, the starting the infrastructure yeah. is more expensive, which is something that I understand as I've recently become a homeowner that a lot of stuff at the beginning, but I think a lot of it does pay off. Now I'm very intrigued by this seed saving. Can you explain that more in detail? Well, seed saving is a beautiful ancient practice. It's how all the um, fruits and vegetables that we know and love evolved from the beginning of human agriculture tens of thousands of years ago. People started saving the seeds of plants that grew where they lived so the next season they could plant them. And this is how plant breeding happened. This is how different forms of different vegetables evolve in different locations. So you can seed save in a small urban or suburban area. What you have to do is you let a plant go to seed. Instead of harvesting its fruit, you let the, um, the, the yield of that plant be the seed. Some plants are much easier to harvest from than others, like a sunflower, for example. It's super easy to save a sunflower seed. Or a bean, very easy to save a seed. Or, or corn, you save one ear of corn and you dry it out, and then that ear becomes your seed stock for the next year. Other plants are a little more complicated because they tend to cross they get cross-pollinated, and then sometimes you can get a hybrid or a mutated seed that isn't any more true to what you started out with. Like, for example, broccoli and kale will cross because they're in the same plant family. So sometimes you get a broccoli that has a lot, a lot, a lot of leaves that look like kale. <laughs> so so there are, as you get better at seed saving, there's different levels of um, easy-to-hard seeds to save. But... Um, it's a really, I find it a really um, calming, beautiful practice to know that I can go in the garden and I can let this one head of lettuce go to seed and I'll get, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of seeds off that one plant, which I can save until the next season, and then I will scatter that and then I'll have that lettuce and I'll let one more plant go to seed again and then I'll, I'll it just keeps going on and on. And there's also a lot of good reason for seed saving at this point because there are companies like Monsanto which are trying to control the gene pool and own patents on seeds, on the life force. So the more we in our home scale and community scale ways save seeds that are pertinent to where we each live, like each location, different things will grow better. And you want to develop seed stock that's really um, hardy and productive in the place where you live, and that's a project that can be done. That can be done in your neighborhood or in your community. And people also, again, are sharing the sharing the the job. Like if I save enough lettuce that I can share with my friend who saved the tomatoes, together we're you know we're each doing one task and getting two sets of seeds. So it's another beautiful um, project that that. Um, preserves genetic diversity where you live, creates seed stock, and spreads the wealth. 
I love that. <laughs> I, I was thinking about that too when you talk about seed saving and you know that you have the seed yourself with all of the GMOs that we have out now. I mean, here's a way you know for sure. And you know, we talk about cost saving because right now, I mean, yeah, if something is organic, you know that it's non-GMO. But certainly, organics are more expensive. Mm-hmm. And it's also just fascinating about the idea of seed saving because I was thinking, I was thinking, you know, when well, when you grow your own food, you still have to pay for the seeds, but that if you can actually get the seeds again, I mean, that's so sustainable. Yeah. It's totally a, a closed loop system. It's just input and output is balanced. But, you know, and you can't do it with every one. I, I planted some of those funny broccolis this year, and I did get odd broccolis with kale leaves. And so I think those seeds I will probably compost or feed to my chickens, and I will buy some broccoli seeds next year. So, you, you, you know, it's an experiment. A garden is an ongoing experiment, and you get to see what happens when you um, when you try things out. And I think that that's some of the spirit of the homesteading movement that I've seen, is that people with no, not necessarily any experience with the land or with gardens, or not people who came from farms and moved to cities, but just people living in cities are, are just trying to learn these things and that spirit of experimentation and we'll try it and if it doesn't work out we'll try it again in a different way next year is a is really part of that attitude of we can do it ourselves we can relearn these things and so seed saving is a great example of where that happens right and the thing is it sounds like you also save the seeds not just for growing other things but even if you can't use it again to grow the same product you can use it for other things such as feeding the chickens or composting so it doesn't yeah. go to waste, and oh. essentially you do save because you don't have to buy chicken feed. Now, certainly the chickens—that's something that I think will appeal yeah. to uh, to you know a show called the Appropriate Omnivore, as well as you're going to be speaking at the Weston A. Price Conference in November. So, tell us a little about the chicken feeding and other ways that you can rely locally on getting your own meat. Yeah, meat is meat, and um, animal products I think are. Um, you can't, generally speaking, unless you have a lot of space, which isn't the case usually in a city, you can't produce all that you need. But um, the chickens, definitely if you give them a safe and secure and a warm home to live in, they will give you, they will give you eggs and you can absolutely harvest them for meat if you're intrepid enough and willing to do it. Um, I think a lot of people take on chickens and they don't think sort of to the end of the chicken's life life cycle or to the, they certainly don't think to the end of the egg laying cycle, which is, you know, four or five years in a chicken's going to stop laying eggs. And so then you have this choice of, am I going to keep buying organic feed to feed my chicken who is not giving me any more eggs or am I going to dispatch this chicken to the soup pot? I choose to dispatch the chicken, even though I hate, hate, hate killing them. I, I really do not enjoy the process, but I found that I can't really justify the, uh, I don't want them as pets. I really want the chickens as useful, functional parts of my farm. So I have to take responsibility at a certain point and go, okay, girls, today's the day. (laughs) So, you know, other people, um, one way to raise really good meat is rabbits. Rabbits um, take up less space. They reproduce rapidly. You can get um, two or three or four litters a year with like six or seven rabbits in it. That's a lot of meat. And so, again, you have to learn how to um, humanely and quickly um, kill them and skin them. But um, they provide really high-quality, low-fat meat that you can use. 
Um, you can freeze it. You can extrude out of it. There's lots of ways to use the rabbit. So people are doing that for sure. There's definitely um, we see the animals we see mostly in the urban area are chickens and quail, which are small small birds that produce small eggs, and the rabbits and some people keep goats also in the city. I don't see that very much where I live in Sonoma County. Interestingly enough, since this is a more rural area, actually, like we live in the suburbs, but I don't see anybody with goats in their backyard. But in Oakland, where my collaborating author lives, there's people everywhere with goats. So who knew? (laughs) There's like a goat revolution in Berkeley. So people get milk from the goats. And um, I suppose there's some goat slaughtering going on, but I'm not really to that. So I, I do think the better way in the city, again, is to form collectives to create um, relationships with people who are growing animals humanely and to buy from a, a farmer who wants to spend their time taking care of these animals in a good way and getting your meat that way. But you're not going to be able to, um, you're not going to be able to create, generate all your um, meat and dairy products on a small urban lot. It's just, there's just not enough space. And you're not either going to be able to grow all the food you need to take care of those animals. So there's definitely input with, with the animals. And, and that's something to think about, for sure. When you're, when you're thinking of setting yourself up, it's like, do you have the money to feed them? Do you have the money to create a, a situation that's safe for them? So those are all questions to ask as you get into your, your animal-tending tasks. Right, I imagine it'd be hard to raise like a a cow or a pig. Um, yeah. Certainly in, in urban. Yeah, I've never heard of anyone <laughs> raising a cow in the city or the suburbs. I have heard of someone raising a pig. There's a woman named Novella Carpenter whose work you might be aware of. She wrote a really funny book called Farm City, which is about mm-hmm. her life as an urban homesteader in the like in a in a really rough neighborhood in Oakland, and she basically squatted an abandoned lot next to her house, and she kept pigs there. And there's some hilarious scenes of her running after the pigs in Oakland because they got away, and she mostly fed the pigs by dumpster diving. So you know, but and she slaughtered the pig, and she made tons of meat products out of it. So she she really went whole hog. <laughs> A nice choice but of words. I, yeah, and you know she and. She really, uh, she went for it. She really did. I, but I have not heard of anybody else who's who's uh, raising pigs like that for meat. You know, some people have small pot-bellied pigs, but they tend to much be much more pets than food. But these are like full-on giant, you know, 300, 400-pound <laughs> pigs. <laughs> so got to be a certain kind of person for that. Right. So where you live, is there like a local farmer that you can get good grass-fed beef from? <laughs> Yeah, there is actually. There's a woman down the road who bought a very large property. She read The Omnivore's Dilemma, was completely inspired, gave up her life. <coughs> Excuse me. She gave up her life in suburban Marin County and became a chicken farmer. <coughs> and they raised tons of chickens and pigs and cows, all grass-fed, all humanely um, dealt with. And... She actually has a meat CSA, so people buy into the farm in the way you buy into a, a, a vegetable farm and you get your portion of meat every week, whatever it is, whatever they've got. Oh, wow. And so this is one where... Excuse me, I'm really having a hard time here. Just a sec. 
so sorry. Oh, no problem. Okay. Right. So this um, the CSA. This is something where you have to be part of it to join. Like she's not a she doesn't sell like at farmers markets <laughs> or at supermarkets. She doesn't sell at supermarkets. She's trying to um, build up her membership base because, um, as you know, the CSA model is such a great model for farmers where they get the money that they need to run their operation, and then people get the food that they've paid for, but there's not this there's not this gap for the farmer. If the crop should fail, people are still paying to be part of the farm and to be part of the farm experience, and she doesn't have to spend her time running around from farmer's markets or... You know, she, her distribution is much simpler. People come to her and they pick up their meat. So it's a, it's a really a great model for the farmers. <clears throat> right, and I imagine uh, you know more cost saving model for the customers too, because she doesn't have to like, pay th- to sell it through the supermarket or. Yep. Or I mean, it's costly. Market. Like, let's face it. Like, good, um, well raised, grass fed meat is costly. It's more expensive than you'll get at Whole Foods, and as we know, Whole Foods is super costly. So it's, I don't. Um, I don't know how to eat good meat uh, affordably. I have not figured that part out. I think it's if you want to eat the kind of meat that um, is really recommended, the grass-fed, no hormones, no nothing, it'll cost you. Yeah, it is hard. That's a a sticking point, I think, for this whole food movement is the the kind of class, class reality. Like, how do we make this? kind of great food available for everyone and I, d- I don't see a way to do it unless the the major industrial systems really cha- transform so that there's <clears throat> just a much more um, production of high quality meat and that's slowly happening but it's pretty slow right well that's part of it what I think happens is at the beginning we have to pay more I mean I kind of see it similar to like um, HDTVs at the beginning remember how they were expensive and it mm-hmm. seems like by the month they go down in price and I mean, right. grass-fed beef is kind of the HDTV of meat. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And that's why I think it is good for people who care about this to really support these farmers who are who are pioneers in making this kind of food available at a, at a wider scale because they really do need the support of our dollars to keep working. And one of the things that people think about homesteading, I think because it comes from the history of our country of you have this image of the the homesteaders who crossed the plains and claimed this land and were incredibly rugged and can do everything themselves, is that this homesteading movement is not about, it's not about doing everything yourself, and it's not about claiming land in that way. All the land frontiers have been claimed and desecrated, right? We're trying to, like, take care of the piece of land where we live right now, and the truth is none of us can be self-sufficient. You can't grow everything you need in a city. And that's a good thing. It makes you have to go out and make relationships with other people who are, who have services and resources that you don't have. And this is how we rebuild our local economies. You find your local pig farmer. You find your local gray water installer. You find your great tomato grower. And you do your part. You become a beekeeper. Whatever it is, you do your part. And you're, you're part of this web of people who are recreating the food system, recreating local economy. And we're kind of composting this idea of being independent. It's part of how we got into the mess we're in. We need to remember that we're interdependent. We're part of a whole. We're not, we don't have to do it on our own. We don't have to, we don't have to do it on our own. So I really like to say that because I think people sometimes get overwhelmed at the thought of taking on some of these 
this homesteading life because it seems like, oh my God, it's so much work. Who has time? How can you do all this stuff? And the answer is you don't have to do it all. You don't have to. <clears throat> but being friendly and making relations, that'll be really important, right? You know, you've got to go find your farmers and you've got to go find the people who have the skills you don't have. Absolutely. So that's a good point to bring up about uh, finding the time to do all this. And we will get back to that in a little bit. But first, let's hear from our sponsor. Wise Traditions Conferences bring a world of nutrition information to the health professional and health-conscious consumer. And the conference meals and exhibit hall reflect our dietary principles. Join us this September 15th to 16th, Buffalo, New York, for our second regional conference. Or November 9th to 12th in Santa Clara, California, for our 13th annual international conference. Learn and grow in wellness. See more details on WestonAPrice.org. And we're back. I am talking with Rachel Kaplan, author of the book Urban Homesteading. We were talking about how you balance finding all the time to do all this and also, you know, relying somewhat on outside farmers to help you a little with it. So now my question for you is, do you make a living as an urban homesteader? Ho, ho. No, I do not. I do not make a living. I make my life as an urban homesteader, but I make my living as a, as a psychotherapist and a teacher. So I, I work in a totally different field, although connected because it's all about repair and health, really. It's about healing. But no, I definitely do not make my living as a homesteader. Oh, wow, right. And I see also from your your bio on your website you do, in addition to uh, therapy and homesteading, um, I see that you've also done writing and education, designing, activism, and theater. So that's a lot of yeah. different things to balance Pretty along with the busy. homesteading. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, I do work a fairly um, – what's the way to say it? I don't work in general nine-to-five jobs day after day after day after day after day. I have been lucky – to be able to be creative with my work life. And so that is part of the answer to how I find the time to do a lot of these things. And also because I have had a small child, I have been home more in the last decade than ever before. And so that's, this is um, when I've really <clears throat> evolved a lot of these systems while I was home more with our daughter. So that's about to change. We'll see what that does to our homestead. But um, I think it's a big question for people about how to, how to how to make these kind of transitions towards greater sustainability at home, and how do you um, create systems that actually work for you? It's important to really be real about the kind of time you have and the kind of interest you have and the kind of skills you have or that you want to gain and what you can comfortably um, <clears throat> add to your life to make it more um, balanced, more sustainable where you're producing more, consuming less, all of that. Right. And now you've talked certainly a lot about the different gardening and raising animals, the food aspect of urban homesteading, but urban homesteading certainly has another a number of other angles as well. What are some of the other things involved with urban homesteading that you do? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, one thing I love to do is also a garden-based thing is to grow herbs that I turn into different kind of medicines. So I really am interested in herbalism and how simple and easy it is to uh, grow them and turn them into really beautiful healing balms and salves and tinctures. So that's one thing that's happening. And um, 
there's a lot of stuff happening in the cities with natural building. People are building structures out of cob, which is straw and mud, and straw bale houses and recycled and repurposed materials. So there's a lot of creative building projects that are happening as part of the homesteading way. There's a lot of work with water um, saving, water catchment, um, gray water reuse, rainwater catchment, especially in the dry western states. And um, a lot of stuff around energy conservation and production and um, so people are really trying to use less true up their houses better so that their houses are less um, energy guzzlers and if they can um, so using solar energy wherever they can um, that's not really an option generally speaking for people who are renters it's one of those one of those hitching you know sticking points but a lot of people really can start getting um, involved in using more solar energy and in reducing their energy use. And then there's waste management, which sort of translates as a zero-waste lifestyle, um, which is something I have found when I go around talking to people about, about this. This is like a place where anybody can begin, anybody, no matter how old they are, no matter where they live, whether they rent or they own, whether they're students or elders, like learning to um, use less, create less garbage, um, yeah, recycle everything, buy things that aren't wrapped in plastic, et cetera, et cetera. Like these are, these are um, practices that everybody can take on. So that's part of what we see as well. And um, Ruby and I, when we wrote this book, my friend Kay Ruby Bloom, who's the other author of the book, we also included in the whole paradigm the self-care, how we take care of ourselves in um in our lives, that we, we really see each of us as precious, non-renewable resources, and people often who care about the world or who want to see changes, there's a tendency to um, to burn out, to not really to not really factor ourselves into the equation. So, um, <clears throat> we talk a lot in our book about different things you can do to help uh, sort of refill the well personally, your own personal ecology. So. And that's not a conversation that we see that much in the whole sustainability conversation. How do we how do we take care of ourselves? So that was something we really felt like was very important to talk about. So so those are the main ones. The other the other you know the garden really is the center of it. The food growing piece is the center of it. So all those skills like creating healthy soil, composting, vermicomposting. You know, this the whole the whole process of plants from seeds to stem, and then all the kitchen skills. People are learning all of those skills. So the the garden and the kitchen are the center of the homestead, and then the energy spreads out to all these other systems that are also essential to life. Right? We all need water. We need to figure out how to manage our waste. We all need energy. All these things are um, part of the paradigm. That's a good point you bring up about some of these things. Obviously, if you live in an apartment, uh, you won't be able to do such as solar energy. But what are some things for people living in apartments that they can do to become more self-reliant, specifically with food and with water? Well, it really depends on your situation. I thought about this a lot when I wrote the book. Like somebody who lives in like a high-rise New York City apartment who doesn't have any control over the water system or the energy system, I think the best you can do is use less. Right, so you you save the water in the bathtub and you use it to flush the toilet. That's a really simple one. Or you commit to only and always buying, you know, food outside of the house in a recyclable um, 
container that you carry with you. So there's lots of there's lots of little daily practices where you can get yourself down to using as little as possible and creating as little waste as possible. I think if you have no access to land at all, like if you are in a high-rise situation or in a situation where there's no land, one of the solutions that I have come up with is to find somebody who has a piece of land that they don't want to use. Like I work in a backyard of somebody who really didn't want a garden in her yard. She really wanted someone in there to make it beautiful and to teach her a little bit about gardening. So I got this huge empty backyard, which I grow a lot of food in. And this woman and I have made an interesting relationship with one another. We never would have befriended each other in any other circumstance. And now we garden together and she knows a lot more than she did when we started five years ago. And we have a great working relationship. So I think that that's something that people can look to is how do you utilize the available space, which may or may not be your own, and um, find ways to share it with other people. So those are some thoughts I have. Just to, you know, there's, there's, there's abandoned lots and empty yards everywhere, everywhere. I think that's a great idea about finding someone else that has a garden. Certainly it was something I experienced when um, – I know a lot of people that have homes and they do gardening, but it's they don't necessarily like it's not their favorite part of home owning. For me, that was actually one of the reasons why I wanted to buy a house was to have my own garden. And right. actually, as I was doing it, because um, someone was asking me why, you know, just a single guy is buying a house. And I said, well, because I want to do things like have a garden. And he said, oh, I hate gardening. Uh, you know, you want to uh, garden for me. So, there you, you know, for me, no, I, I wanted the house because it was not just the gardening. But, um, but that is a good point for other people. Maybe you have friends that um, own homes and they need some help with their gardening and you can help them a little and get some of your own vegetables. Yeah, I mean, I plant for my friend Camille some every time, every every season we plant stuff for her. She eats so much kale. So we give her tons of kale to eat and chard and she is happy and then I do my other things and, you know, we make sure she gets what she needs and I get what I need and it, it's really an interesting um, working relationship because, you know, she's being super generous to to let me use her space but she really didn't want to do it herself and I think again that um, one of the one of the ways that this whole lifestyle functions is on cooperation and sort of out of the box thinking like that. You know, you could you could come up against the wall of I have no space to garden, or you could look up and look around and see where there's space that's not being utilized and see if you can make the relationship and use it. You know, and I think that's happening in lots and lots of places. And I know another thing is community gardens where you can join part of a community garden. That's another thing to do. Yeah, definitely. That was my first garden space in the town where we live was a community garden plot because we had no, we had like one raised bed at this house that we rented and it just was not enough and it was right around the corner and I joined and even though we, I now have this other garden at home and this garden in my friend's yard, I, I keep that garden and I use it to grow potatoes and leeks and onions and squash, things that you plant them and then they grow and you don't really have to do that much for them, you know, sort of the one-time harvest crops. And, you know, I have this whole relationship with all these people at that garden, which is um, in a way the most challenging place for I garden <laughs> because, um, you know, even though I, I sort of sing the praises of community, I, I think the truth of all this is that all these skills in homesteading are very, uh, they're easy to learn, and they're, they're, they're old skills. 
skills that people have been doing for a long time. But the the more important skills that we need at this time, especially in cities, is for people to learn to get along with each other. We don't have consensus about how to proceed, and we don't totally know how to give each other respect for our differences. And so the community garden really highlights <laughs> reality. You know, certain people plant certain things over and over and never show up for work days or do this or that, and other people get annoyed at it. There's a lot of human dynamics that um, we we need a lot of practice in, in working on, and I think that that's, that's one of the big cutting edges for people right now is figuring out how to work together as creatures that need certain things to live across all of the different political differences and different ideas about what makes a good life. You can see that at every level of culture. Like, we, we are not in agreement, you know, but we have to figure out how to work together. Mm-hmm. And another thing also you can still do in your apartment is composting. Mm-hmm. And if you're lucky enough to live in a city or place where they have a green garbage bin where you can just dump all your kitchen compost and they'll take it and they'll turn it into soil, that's great. You know, everything you can compost, compost it. Right. That is sure. wonderful. Now some of the cities are offering it. And nothing I had heard was um, even if, like, you don't have a garden where you're going to end up using the food you compost, is that it's still better uh, to have it composted and then and then thrown out versus throwing out the food itself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always better to compost, for sure, because compost turns everything back into soil, and we need good soil. Can't grow food without good soil. And I know that in addition to you know to doing the urban homesteading yourself and to, to writing books about you also teach some classes in it. Uh, where would people be able to attend one of your classes? Well, I teach in Sonoma County, through an organization called Daily Acts, which is a local sustainability organization, and I teach um, canning skills, and sometimes I teach a chicken backyard chicken workshop. I also um, teach a class called the Urban Homestead Design Lab, which is a, a way of thinking about all these different elements of the homestead that we've been talking about and how you would make choices for your own self, your own family about what what you would want to take on, how you would want to put these different elements together, what seems like the place to begin. So that's a sort of broader stroke um, course than just how to can or how to take care of chickens. And I I have been doing some traveling and teaching in in different places. I just went to a gathering of um, women herbalists up in Northern California where I taught some classes, and I'm going to go to Colorado next week and do some speaking and teaching there so the best way for people to keep track of that is to go to our website which is urban-homesteading.org and um, all those classes are listed and and also my collaborator runs a school called the Institute for Urban Homesteading in Oakland and she offers about 60 classes a year in all these different homesteading skills so that's a fantastic resource and that's um I think the website is iuhoakland.com. And, but if you Googled Institute for Urban Homesteading, you would get to her. And her name is Ruby Bloom, and she's a fantastic teacher. Right. But it's all, you know, mostly Northern California mm-hmm. is where we are. We can't really, unless people pay us to go places, we can't get there. <laughs> you know? And I think really to say to people, like, I bet pretty much in every major American city and many small towns and 
suburban places, there's people teaching these skills. Or you can find somebody who knows how to do this and ask them to teach you. There's there's people all around who are really starting to do this and really starting to spread the information around. And, of course, the book will teach you lots of things. Right, because certainly I see similar classes like this in Los Angeles, also in California, yeah. the southern part of it, and you're talking also about Denver, but you see this as something going nationwide. It's not you know, simply a California-style totally thing. It's totally nationwide. It's totally nationwide. There's a huge ton of people in Los, the Los Angeles area, for sure. There's people, in, there's people in Denver. There's people in Portland. There's people in Seattle, Brooklyn, Chicago, New Orleans. Detroit is an incredible hotbed of this and you know it makes sense in Detroit right like everything kind of ground to a halt and there's all these empty lots and abandoned houses and people are farming the whole city so there there really is a lot going on there's stuff going on in the south there's stuff going on in Washington DC there's stuff going on in Portland Maine it's just really everywhere and when we did our book we really did some research about where where this was happening and we interviewed a lot of people in our own location to talk about how they were living this way. And, you know, our choice to only interview people who lived locally was just solely based on our inability to actually travel to see other people's places. Like, we didn't have a travel stipend when we wrote our book. And But if I were to redo it, I would I would go to all these different places and see what people are doing. Or, or maybe that's the next book, is really a, a story of how this movement is growing and spreading throughout the country and how different people are doing it in different ways in their own places like it would be different to farm in Detroit than in northern California right the climate's so different but a lot of these things are it's just the same drive to have more control over the essentials of life than we currently do we gave up a lot you know this the push towards convenience and speed changed a lot for people it's so inspiring when I see these communities in Detroit, just all these abandoned places, and they're able to grow this local, you know, food. It's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. And that's just a beautiful example, I think, also of, like, it looks like the end is near, you know? But in permaculture, we say, in the problem lies the solution. And Detroit seems to be a fantastic example of that. It's like, we have a problem. We have no food. Let's grow some food. You know, there's no work here. There's no industry. What? Well, let's get industrious growing our food, you know? And all this abandoned land, you know, let's turn it into something fertile. So it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And that's happening everywhere, you know, and we wrote this book because we live in a bad news time, right? You read the newspapers and it's like one thing after another is kind of falling apart. And it's like, this is this is growing. This is giving people something. And it not only gives people food, but it, it gives them relationships to their place and to each other and a sense of purpose and dignity and and control. And I think that that's really important for human beings to feel like their work has meaning and substance and it's important for people to feed themselves and their families well so it's like a winning winning story it's beautiful to see how people are so resourceful really was that one of the reasons that you wanted to write a book kind of give a different angle of a lot of these environmental books which i mean i like i mean i'm glad to read out read Mm -hmm. about certainly like how bad our food is or how bad these industries are did you want to have an environmental book that took a totally positive message yeah, that's a great question. I worked really hard while I was, um, I, I did a lot of research as I was writing the book, and I read a lot of statistics that completely uh, freaked me out. And I thought, well, 
you know, they would immobilize me. I'd be up at night fretting. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't need to, I don't want to say that in this book. I don't want to frighten people. I want to inspire people. I want people to know that they can do this, that there's ways to um, live better. And yeah, we're in a time that's difficult and things are changing and the systems that we've relied on aren't functioning um, very well. And the chances of them really getting better isn't so great. So what what are we to do? And there's, it turns out there's really a lot of things that we can do, and there's a lot of small daily acts that everybody can take, and then there's these bigger home-scale solutions. And so, yeah, it was like a, I wanted a sort of solution-focused, inspirational, um, here's what you can do, because that's what happened for me. I felt afraid, you know. I thought, oh, my God, things are going to be so bad. What's going to happen for my poor daughter and her people? You know, it's like apocalypse now kind of thinking. and doing all this stuff composted that it was like well we can go live in the dirt (laughs) (laughs) this is really cool (laughs) i feel so much better i'm not so worried i'm going to go out to the garden now you know and so it really worked for me to to transform some of that um thinking and you know there's a cultural uh sort of leaning towards the apocalypse right like that's one of the big cultural narratives is like the end is near and Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but I, I felt like to give people tools and inspiration towards working towards the world that we want to live in, which is vibrant and renewed and healthy and delicious and abundant and fun and connected, you know, like, you can do that now. So maybe the bleep is hitting the fan and maybe it's not, you know, maybe that this is happening because we get to regrow, we get to regrow, you know, and do this in a better way. So that was, I really didn't want to freak people out with all the statistics. They can get that from Lester Brown and the State of the World and all the, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I didn't need to add to that. I didn't think it was useful, actually. That goes along kind of with the philosophy of my good friend, uh, Ron DeFelice, the good Green Witch, who's co-owner of the station and for uh, for a little bit she had a show before me. Her thing is saving the species, not the planet. Well, I don't, you know, I don't even think we can save anything, actually. I think, mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of think, let's live a good life now that's in alignment with our values and that puts forth um, the intent towards healing and repair and restoration. And it's out of our hands if we save ourselves or the planet. We can't save the planet. And I don't know if we can save ourselves. So I, I think, I feel liberated when I stop trying to save anything. Except seats. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just we don't really know what's going on, you know, in the big picture. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. And that, that's really true. We just don't know. And, but I think, and as people who don't, like, I don't feel like I have that much personal political power, right? Like, I don't have power from the top down. So this is sort of that grassroots way of of making change happen. And you know, just by living a kind of ordinary life, you can actually be part of the changes that need to happen in our culture. Right, and certainly do a lot of different changes. Now, do you have some favorite of tasks of all the things that you do? I do. Let's see. Well, as I said, I love the medicine making. I love, I love like going out in the garden and smelling the herbs and harvesting them and tincturing them and turning them into salves and things like that. I love, I love that process. And I love um, harvesting food, and I love water saving. I'm really concerned about water. You know, it's very dry where I live, and every drop really matters. And we have this super long dry season, as you guys do too, down in Los Angeles. And so I'm really involved in 
saving the water. And in the winter, I've developed this crazy rudimentary rainwater catchment system where I, I set up buckets and barrels all around our our yard underneath these like dripping gutters. We re- we're renters. This is the other thing I like to tell people. We rent. So we're working within the limitations of renting and not owning. And the gutters don't work very well. Our landlord sort of is letting them go. And um, so I'm just like running through the rain, gathering water, dumping it into barrels, and getting like this total, um, I get like my body gets to be in contact with water. So that's it's not a really efficient system, and I wouldn't recommend it for other people, but it, it gives me so much pleasure to be, after the dry season, just running around in the rain. So that's something I really love. And I love the bees. I love having bees around, and my partner's a beekeeper, and just learning about the bees and how they live and how important they are to our foods and just how beautifully integrated and cooperative they are. I like to meditate on their, their way. So those are some things I really love. I love cooking. You know, I love I love transforming the food from one thing to another. I love filling up the freezer in the summer with tomato soup and zucchini soup and onion soup and all these things that I know in December will taste so delicious. So that's something I do all summer long, too. Well, Rachel, it's been great to have you, and we have to go to our desserts in a second. But before we go, can you again give us the address where we can find your website? Sure, thank you. It's um, www.urban-homesteading.org. And the hyphen's really important between the urban and the homesteading. Otherwise, you'll get to a different urban homesteader. And, um, yeah, thank you for being here. It's great. Well, it was great to have you on. And now for our desserts. How to live appropriately in the upcoming week. At the meeting for the Weston A. Price chapter this Thursday, you can see the documentary Genetic Roulette and learn about GMOs. And uh, while you're there, you will also get the chance to taste some of my talked-about tortilla chips. These are non-GMO sprouted corn tortillas cooked in a coconut oil instead of the traditional canola oil, which is also often GMO. That meeting starts at 6.30, and it will be held at the Nature Friends Clubhouse in Sierra Madre. Um, And also, as we are getting very close to the November ballots when you'll vote on Prop 37 in order to label GMOs, Here's a big way that you can help. You can go to uh, phone banking for Yes on 37. This is held by the West Side Dem headquarters, which is located at the 3rd Street Promenade. And this phone banking, it's going to take place every Tuesday and Thursday from 5 to 8.30 and also on Saturdays from 2 to 5. And finally, certified health coach Jessica Pantermule will be teaching a class on soaking and sprouting grains, nuts, and legumes at the Whole Foods Market in Glendale this Wednesday, and that starts at 6.30, and certainly it's very important to learn how to soak all of these grains, nuts, and legumes because they're very high in phytates, and by soaking it or sprouting it, that's a great way to reduce them, and it makes it easy for your body to nourish it. And that is all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. Next week, we continue our Wise Traditions speaker series with Tara Smith of Terra Firma Farms to find out more about my news stories, my guests, and the events happening this week, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.blogspot.com. Music.